after I yelled at you all day yesterday, I thought, what am I going to do today? <laughs> I, I did fully intend to get through the rest of Hosea yesterday, and, and uh, I think I made maybe six verses. But I believe the things that were said needed to be said. I do believe that God had a hand in that. Uh, I hope we take those lessons to heart. I hope we're making the changes we need to make. You know, sometimes I, I think of that comment that Paul made, that the foolishness of preaching... And sometimes it does appear foolish and seem foolish to rattle your head and rattle your tongue, especially if it doesn't change anything. You know, what purpose is there in spending the time talking if we just want to hear and it's pleasant words or nasty words or whatever words it is, um, but we don't do anything about it, and it sort of goes over our head and is forgotten, and that's the end of it. Now, because he said preaching was foolishness, doesn't mean that he didn't do it. There are many examples in the New Testament where Paul went ahead and preached. But I'm sure he felt at times that it was a futile thing, because people just rocked on like they were, and... Human beings do change very slowly, for the most part. Unless something happens that makes their hair turn white overnight. <laughs> you know, if we get in a very traumatic situation, sometimes we change faster. But human beings, just as a rule, generally, are very slow to change. And we do get like a heifer not broke to lead. We plant our feet, and even though we might say, yeah, I need to change this, it, it just, it's just hard to do. For one thing, change is difficult. It's not easy to redo habits. Terry talked this morning about giving up our grudges, giving up our bad memories, and forgiving. But you know, that's very hard to do. So very hard to do. I mean, it's nice to hear about, and he made some fine points about it. Well, we, will, will we make note of that and say that was a good sermonette? It's gone. Or will we search our minds and find any of those things that might be lingering there that we can use as pressure points against one another from time to time? And don't we all know as husbands and wives, sometimes in the heat of battle, um, things can come up that are 10, 20, 30, 40 years old. Probably not 50, because then by then the recall is gone. <laughs> now, I don't know about that. Sometimes when we get older and our minds begin to deteriorate, <clears throat> some of those things that have been imprinted there come back to us and we remember the things that happened 40 years ago and we can't remember what happened three minutes ago. That's the way the mind sometimes goes. I think we've all had relatives or known people that could just tell you everything that happened down to the detail 40, 50 years ago and they don't know whether they had breakfast or not. 
the mind is a difficult thing to work with. I was surprised this morning that conversations had been going around, I didn't know about them yesterday, about why we quit wearing neckties and why we needed to take flowers down and why we need to do this and why we need to do that. They're not really big issues in one sense, but it's just kind of a complain, gripe, don't understand, whatever. But we, you know, it just becomes habit to gripe and complain and to be negative. Oh, I hope we were listening yesterday and that we might begin to actually change some of those things so that it's more peaceful. What good does it do to murmur, murmur, murmur about this, that, or the other thing? I mean, is a tie a big thing? I don't know that it's a great spiritual thing, but why do you need to wear a phalanx around your neck hanging limply there? Uh, I guess you can pretty it up and decorate it, but why do you need it? Maybe it's not a big spiritual issue, but then on the other hand, maybe it could be. You remember the kings of Israel back in the Old Testament and how it would say that this king walked before God and did well, and, but he didn't remove the high places. Or another one, he did bad, and he also didn't remove the high places. What were the high places? Those were the places where they went to worship, and in some cases they actually trimmed the limbs off the trees so they just stuck up like totem poles, and maybe you can get the picture from there. But the phallic symbol, a male member, for those who can't quite get it, was an object of worship. We have Washington's monument. They can't build anything higher than Washington's uh, monument. Well, I'll get nervous. In Washington, D.C., there's a law against making anything higher than Washington's monument. Should it be there? No, it's an abomination sticking right up under God's nose. And that's the way they worshipped. And the kings were afraid of removing those things because they were so dear to the people, or <clears throat> they themselves like that, maybe. I don't know all the reasoning, but God did say, well, this king did pretty good here, he did pretty good there, but he didn't take down the high places. So was it an issue with God? It appears that it was. And when we look into history and we see the origins of some of these things, some of it's very clear in some of the books about pagan things. Some of it's a little iffy and maybe not as clear, and maybe it's not, maybe it wasn't completely and totally pagan. But the meaning is there, and even the business world in America today understands what the tie is. Even the women are starting to wear them in business. <laughs> Whatever. So is it a big issue? Maybe not. It's easy to take off, isn't it? 
if it's something that could be repugnant to God, I would rather, brethren, be careful than I had to say, ah, it's not a big deal. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I'd rather be on safe ground than I had on shaky ground. So let's understand the spirit in which some of these things are done. And uh, I can't go to chapter and verse and say, give a thus saith the Lord about, say, flowers. God made flowers, and I think they make a beautiful decoration. And we have all kinds of flowers and leaves and various things here, uh, dried grasses which indicate we're in the harvest season. And I don't think that God has a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it. They're the beautiful things God made, and they depict the time of the year of the ingathering, the harvest that God gave us. But the pagans at some point did start putting flowers on the altar. So maybe we shouldn't have them at the pulpit. It isn't an altar. But the, the symbolism between the altar going before God and us having a place to speak the words of God from is similar. So I think to be careful. But you see, I may not have a problem with having some flowers here. But what if they offend somebody? What if somebody read some things and to them it is a difficulty and a stumbling block? Now, I might not have a problem with either the tie or the flowers or pick a subject. You might not. But if somebody does, it can create a problem, can't it? Because they're trying to listen to the sermon, all they can see is those flowers. A tie might not bother you, but if I had one on today, it would bother some people. You know that? Some people it would bother. Others it might not. They'd think that's not a big deal. But if it's a big deal to somebody, then we need to take it into consideration, don't we? Do I need to go back and read the Scriptures? where Paul said to be very, very careful, where he even made the statement he would not eat meat again in his life if it offended somebody or was a stumbling block for them. Now that is a pretty big proclamation for a man to make. He was so concerned about Christ's words, wasn't he? What did Christ say? Don't offend the little one, or you might as well have a millstone tied around your neck. And millstones were pretty heavy, solid rock. And you went blub when you got thrown in with one of those. It was all over. Christ meant what he said. Do not offend the little ones. Be very careful. So when Paul preached the word... He took to heart what Christ had said and was very careful not to offend. Had new people coming in, they didn't understand all the reasons for what was being done in the church. So he said, if they were vegetarians, I won't even eat meat if it bothers them. If it would create a problem that they had to overcome and deal with. Now, maybe in time they would understand that meat eating was okay. Then he could go back to it. Or he could eat it when they weren't around. 
But then somebody might tell them that he did, and they'd be offended anyway. So, you know, how do you win? So on some things, there might not be a thus saith the Lord, but there might be enough information there that it makes it questionable. And it doesn't hurt us, does it, not to have to buy tithes? It doesn't hurt us not to have to tie them. My fingers haven't missed it at all. Bother me any. But we can get, if, you know, if you want to be negative, if that is the way your mind has worked, and you have gotten into that pattern in life, then you can find a way. You can find a way. If you're a nitpicker, you'll find some nits to pick. If you like to be negative and that's your approach to life, you'll find a way to do it. Now see what I mean, the foolishness of preaching. I went through that whole thing about Joseph, and we spent how many weeks on going back to our fathers, and about how Joseph was positive, and I think I even yelled a little bit that day. Maybe. What day don't I? Anyway, how he was positive and how he found a way to look on the bright side no matter where he was. And he was so much that way that even prisoners and people who are the scum of society changed their approach to the point the, peepers, the keepers of the prison couldn't believe it. Said, hey, you be in charge. Morning exercise, Joseph, you lead it. You know, whatever. Because he was that positive in his approach. And we're the children of Joseph through Ephraim. Did that change anybody's approach or attitude? I don't know. May not have if we're still murmuring. We're still complaining. Now, you might offend somebody with your murmuring and griping and complaining. Why not change it? Is there something in us that compels us to murmur and complain? To question everything? Now, I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I don't even know who was doing this. But probably everybody. <laughs> you know? At one time or another, we've all griped and complained. But God really, really, brethren, doesn't like it. When Israel murmured, God got very, very upset. You know what? He was far more upset about murmuring than he was about flowers or ties or Purim or things that we have changed here that some might not like. Which is the greater sin, wearing a tie or murmuring? You can murmur about ties, and you're creating a, you're, you are committing a greater sin than the tie itself, in all likelihood. Look back in the Old Testament. Look in the New Testament. God literally killed people for murmuring and complaining. Literally. 
three and a half million Israelites came out of Egypt. And he killed every man and woman of them over a 40-year period for murmuring and complaining and not following the direction of God and the ones he appointed to lead them. That's pretty serious business. What did Korah and those people do? Murmured, complained against Moses. God opened the ground and swallowed them up. He said, I'm not going to have this in my camp. We could do a whole series of sermons going through the Bible, Proverbs, all through the New Testament about gossip and backstabbing and backbiting and when it talks about the works of the flesh. Peter, Timothy, you know, wherever you go, it's in there. Paul dealt with it all the time because it was a problem then, just like it's a problem today. If a man doesn't sin with his tongue, he's a perfect man. And so we all do sin with our tongues. We're all in it together. So I'm not here to dress down anybody. I'm here to help you understand so that you might make changes and please your Father in heaven. You know, Let's understand why some things are the way they are, why some decisions are made. There are some that become very clear. You can quote chapter and verse and say, here it says, right here in plain English, this is what we need to do. Those things are fairly easy to make judgments on. But when it's something that might be a little questionable or the origin is not quite clear, if it's suspicious, why do it? You know, it's, I think it's fairly clear about the Christmas tree, isn't it? Jeremiah 10. Hot cross buns and things there in Jeremiah about Easter. Those things are quite clear. Now, is there anything about pagan about a tree? No, God made trees. Trees are wonderful. Talks about trees of righteousness in Isaiah, how his people will become trees of righteousness. Trees are symbolic of men. Some trees bear fruit. Some trees do not bear fruit. Some are cut down and burned. Others are preserved. Now, when does a tree become pagan? It's when men do some things to it that are ungodly. Now, is, is a Christmas tree ugly? I don't think most people would think that a Christmas tree is ugly. It has little silver balls and bells and gobbles uh, all over it. And I remember, was it my, I think it was one of my kids, or was somebody tell me the story. It's been a long time and my forgettery works. But our children had been taught, I think it was one of my boys, our children have been taught that Christmas trees were pagan and all those decorations and lights that were out in front of people's houses were pagan. So we were driving down the street. And he said, Dad, those things are pagan. His eyes were about that big around. They were pretty to him. All those lights and everything, they're pretty. 
So he wasn't quite making the connection. <laughs> How, what is pagan must be pretty, you know. <clears throat> so it was a little hard for him to understand how it could be bad, bad, bad when it looked so good, good, good. But we don't have any trouble, do we, with the Christmas tree? What made it pagan? When people cut it out of the forest and brought it in and put Nimrod's testicles on it. That made it pagan. Little silver balls. Because of their religion and their debauchery and their perversion is what made it pagan. So the sex organs they hung on the Christmas tree are about the same shape as the ones we put around our neck. Is it a big deal? Basically the same thing. You know, we have to apply a principle. Some people are going to complain if you can't just give them a scripture and verse about a Christmas tree, but that you can on that, but something that's similar to it that the Bible doesn't specifically com condemn, I guess we have trouble applying the principle somehow. We, my, like my son, he, he didn't understand quite the principle of the whole thing. But if it's in that category, we need to be very careful with it. Now they took it out, they decorated it all up, and... In ancient Israel, like I say, they left them on the ground, but they cut all the limbs off. So they more resembled something upright but that was dear to their heart, that they worshipped. So, whether it can be absolutely proved to be right or wrong, if it offends somebody who's trying to do what's right, then we need to cut it out. Again, I say, if Paul would have been willing not to eat meat, lest it offend somebody, that was a pretty big change for him to make, a pretty big sacrifice to make. Are we willing to sacrifice for others, even though we might not think something is all that evil? Somebody may. And it might be a spiritual stumbling block that could keep them out of the kingdom of God. If I'm up here speaking, and you think, and I have a tie on, and you think they came from paganism, or that they are a wrong kind of symbol to be wearing, some people would not be able to hear a word I said, and all they could see would be that tie. It's just like when you're in the back, maybe, and somebody's kid starts acting up, and it's a distraction. And you can't even hear what's being said because the kid's irritating you so bad you can't even hear. Or whatever might be the distraction. So let's understand principles. And let's also not just let things go over our head and not address making some changes that we need to make. Let me go back for a moment to Isaiah. Let's go to chapter 29. And what do I want here? About 30, I think. I don't have 30, but that's, that's okay. 
Um, he's talking about the time, verse 18, In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. We're in a time now, and heading into a greater time, of people beginning to wake up, the blindness and the deafness begin to be stripped away, and that they could understand. We read this just the other day, about here a little there, a little in chapter 28, and how God put things that way so that we could be taken and blinded and deceived. And most of the church is taken and blinded and deceived on most things today. Now, we are trying to be pioneers in a sense, brethren, by examining the whole Word of God, not denying any of it, but trying to sort through every bit of it and get things changed that God would want changed. Because very obviously we were not pleasing God in worldwide because he blew it apart and spit it out of his mouth. So we simply cannot hang onto the idea of keeping things the status quo the way they always were. If God spits you on the ground and rubs you out with his foot, he wasn't real happy with you. He wants some changes made. He really, really does. I want to be in his good graces. I want you to be in his good graces. So if you find that God has not been happy with the way you've been doing things, you need to examine things. And that's where a lot of people in the church are going wrong today. They just moved over to another organization in many cases and kept right on doing the same old things they had been doing as if nothing had happened. Let's just recreate worldwide. Let's just do things the way we always did. We must have been right. No, we weren't right. A lot of things we did were right. But our attitudes were wrong. Now, what do you expect a child to do if you correct them on something that they're doing wrong? Maybe you take away some of their privileges. Maybe you paddle them. Maybe you take various forms of discipline to get them to what? Think and change their thinking and their conduct. You don't just walk in the room and see your kids there and pick up something and start hitting them just because they're there, do you? Not unless you're awfully drunk or hopped up on something or whatever, I don't know. But it isn't normal just to walk in and say, oh, there's my kids, I think I'll hit them. Not the way we think. Now, if we walk in and they're doing something that we don't approve of and they know we don't approve of it, then we'll pick up something and start smacking them around. Because they need their thinking changed. So... In turn, when God saw the church the way it was, he wanted thinking changed. So he smacked us around and spit us out. And he's still smacking us around. Now, a good child, according to Hebrews 12, will let the lame be healed and fix the problem 
and it will produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness once we're chastened. But a child who doesn't learn from that pain of giving up privileges or being paddled on the behind, he doesn't change his conduct and his thinking. He is doomed to get it repeated over and over and over again until he finally gets the picture. Now, God has told us that he is going to put 90% of the church into the tribulation. Only a 10% remnant is going to be saved out of it. I, I could quote you many verses to show that and have in the past. So they're going to get paddled very forcibly in that tribulation because they haven't changed their thinking. Now we have a chance to examine our thinking, having been chastened, and fix that which is crooked and make it straight and bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness that God will approve and he'll take his foot off our neck and turn his face and shine upon us. Now, wouldn't you rather go there? So forgive me if I have tried to examine the Scriptures very straightforwardly and very honestly without any sacred cows and try to get the meaning and the understanding that God intended from the whole Bible. Now, I might be alarmed by some things that shouldn't set off a five-bell uh, alarm. Maybe I'll say we ought to change that just in case. But didn't Paul say also, I would have you be very careful, very careful to do that which is right. So if it's questionable... Wouldn't it be better just not to do it? Or if it's questionable that we should do it, shouldn't we just go ahead and do it? There are some people just still can't understand why we would keep Purim. Well, God uses several chapters of the Bible to put it in his word. It had to do with his people being persecuted and having trouble at the hands of the king. Now we are spiritual Jews today, and we are going to have trouble at the hands of the kings of this earth. They're going to hate us with a passion. And they're going to send out decrees that every one of us be killed. They're going to do exactly what Ahasuerus did. Now, if it was important enough to put in the Bible, let's ask another question. Was the Bible written just for the physical Jews? Huh? Was this written for the physical Jews? Let's go home. Let's let it all fall to the ground. No, let's pick it up. I don't think it was just written to the physical Jews. 
I think Christ told the physical Jews and their leaders that they were snakes and serpents and whitened sepulchers and cups that had been cleaned on the outside but were filthy inside. I don't think of anything that Christ ever said about the leadership of the Jewish people, physically speaking, that was good. He might do some research. He might, he might have made a slip of the tongue somewhere. But he was not happy with them at all. And he's no happier with them today than he was then. So let's get our perspective right. Didn't Paul and the apostles wind up going to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, or the spiritual Israelites, or to the Israelites physically to teach them spiritual Judaism, and then to the Gentiles? And weren't the Gentiles grafted in to be a part of Israel, spiritually speaking? Yes, they were. God gave up on physical Israel and the physical Jews. And he wrote the Bible primarily for the church, number one. Now, he'll use it on physical Israel in the millennium. They're going to have to go back and start keeping his word from Genesis to Revelation. Now, he gave the Jews, the tribe of Judah, the authority to maintain and keep the Old Testament. But let's understand the degree of God's dissatisfaction with them. He had the New Testament preserved in Greek, of all things. The Greeks had nothing to do with God or salvation. And God would rather use people the Greeks, to preserve his word for his New Testament church than Judah itself. I think that speaks volumes about God's attitude toward the Jews. So why did he include Esther and the story there? It's for the spiritual Jews of the end time. Now, do I need to go back through everything we've changed? It's in the Bible. People have even said, well, why should we keep those fasts in Zechariah, those fasts of the months? Those are Jewish. I keep them because God said in Zechariah, I should have been keeping them. Zechariah wasn't written to the Jews, it was written to the church. What did the Jews need to know about the two witnesses and building the latter temple? and doing God's work at the end time. God's not working with the Jews. He's working with the church. So when he starts telling us in Zechariah 4, verse 14, that the two witnesses there, the candlesticks there, are the same as the ones in Revelation 11, then that says it's for today. And it isn't far beyond that in Zechariah that God says you should have been keeping these days in this form, in this fashion. Why weren't you doing it? So when I read that, I say, well, I guess I should have been doing it. I think I'll start. To me, it's a no-brainer. Or it doesn't take much brain. 
But sometimes it takes an awful lot of brain power to reason around something and say, well, I just don't... I'm trying to be very careful, brethren. Your salvation is at stake on a lot of things. And whether you go into the tribulation is also at stake. And I care. And I want to be very, very careful to examine God's Word thoroughly in anything we find in there that we ought to be doing or that we shouldn't be doing. We need to take steps to correct it. Now, you may not always be able to see it. I understand that. So I'm not uptight about that. Maybe if we say it different ways at different times, you'll see it the way I and most of us do. Or maybe you'll still have a problem with certain things. But even if you do, and here's the point, even if you do have a difference, a feeling, or belief about some one of these things or several of them, don't destroy your opportunity at salvation by being offensive to others who might have their faith prompt on, squelched, stopped, or who might have their consciences seared, or their feelings changed from something that could possibly be right, and you're the one that led them away from it. That is scary. Now, do you understand that standing here and talking to you people is a very scary position to be in. Those who teach and preach, God says, are going to have a much sterner judgment. God is going to judge me far more severely than he does any of you. He said so. And that scares me. Somebody else wants sterner judgment from God? Come on. Is that what you're after? I'm not really that fond of preaching. It scares me. If I'm going to receive sterner judgment, I'm going to try to be careful to be sure that everything I preach is something that is right or wrong based on what God says. And if it looks to have pagan roots, I want to be very careful to root it out. If it looks like it could be included in the Bible for a reason, then I want to pay attention to it. I want us to be very, very careful. Now, the minute, now whether you stand here behind this podium of wood or not, but the very minute you take it upon yourself to express your opinions to other people about a doctrinal issue or administration, and sometimes it's just administration, and there are different administrations. Not everybody will do things exactly the same. The minute you take it upon yourself 
to try to guide and direct the course of other people, you are taking upon yourself much sterner judgment from God. Let's understand that. The minute you open your mouth and try to affect people's thinking, you are moving into territory that is dangerous. So before you try to affect people's beliefs or convince them you're right and the preacher's wrong, you're putting yourself in competition with what is being taught. And God will decide who wins that debate. He will either back what is being preached and taught and approve it, or he will either back or disagree with what you are teaching. Most of you would be scared to death to walk up here and give a sermonette. I had somebody tell me the other day, don't let me read songs. Don't let me give a sermonette. Don't ever ask me to do any of that stuff. I'll just bet, if I asked that person, didn't think of it at the time, but it just came to mind, I'll bet if I asked that person this very afternoon, if he had ever disagreed or murmured or said, I don't understand that or I don't agree with that, I don't think we ought to do that, why would they do that? I'll bet he'd say he'd done it. Same thing as a sermonette. Same thing as a sermon. The only difference is the audience is a little bigger. The only difference is you're standing before them and you're scared to say things. Tongue-tied. But in a more relaxed situation, with just a few people, we can make our feelings known, can't we? We have our ways. I want you people to be blessed of God. I want you to have a pre-millennial experience that is similar to the millennium, because I believe that's what's in the scriptures. As the world goes down and forms its thing, God is going to begin to bless his people and give us everything we need. There's one more in Isaiah that might be good to consider in this situation. It's about, what, 32? Yeah, 32. Verse 9, I'll, I'll just cut into it. Rise up, you women that are at ease. The churches are sitting around, not doing much. They're at ease, thinking one day we'll get the call and away we will all go. They think that what they're doing is all right. We're doing what we did in Worldwide, and we hung with those doctrines Herbert Armstrong gave us, and therefore we're being faithful. No, it was worldwide that God spit out. We were too much at ease. Too much thinking we were doing just fine. Thank you. We don't need to change anything. And whole congregations of fives and tens of thousands of people are still thinking that way in some of the branches and splinters of worldwide. Still at ease. They're not crying aloud and sparing not. You get your morning pablum. Same old, same old. Nothing's changed. 
Rise up. Get up. You women that are at ease, quit sitting on your fat butts. Get up. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. It's plural here. He's speaking of the time when he's blown it apart and there are lots of daughters out there. And he's going to choose from those daughters, it says in Proverbs 31. And one is going to be the fairest of them all. One is going to be the one he chooses to work through. Now those conditions that we read about in the prophecies that will come as a witness against the world are not quite here yet. So nobody knows which one of the daughters for sure God is going to choose. But I would sure like to make us be a good candidate for that, wouldn't you? And if we're careless and we're going to sit around with our spiritual fat thinking we're doing okay, we're not very good candidates. We are here to become Mrs. Universe, if you will. And those beauty pageants, talent pageants, whatever they are, corrupt political organizations, those girls work. They work hard to get their figures, their faces, their hair, their dress just right. Spend months and years at it trying to win some silly little crown that says they're the prettiest girl in the world. And they're not. <laughs> All of them that are up there, you can't pick between them. It's just whether you like black hair or blonde hair, I guess, because they all look about the same. But for some reason, one gets chosen to be the best. Well, God has a real situation going on where he is going to take the one that does the best. Proverbs 31 goes through all the things that that one does. She's not lazy if you read Proverbs 31. She's busy. Her candle goes not out by night. She works day and night to be what she should be for her husband and family and for the world around her. I won't go back and read it all. But at the end of the chapter, it says, you're the fairest of them all. I, I pick you. So we've got lots of daughters, lots of sisters, lots of women. Women are churches and Bible symbolism. And God is going to choose one. And to her, he is going to add others from around the world that he knows are working at being what they ought to be. And he will stir them to come and build his temple and do his work at the end. So, he doesn't want careless ones. He wants ones that are alert and alive and are producing fruit, are accomplishing the things that we need to do. We can't be careless. We can't be at ease. Days above a year shall you be troubled. That's in my margin. I think that we may go through some tough times. All the church will. Maybe before he makes that distinction, 
and before he begins to bless. He's going to see which ones tried in the fire are going to do well and which ones won't. Now, the turnaround and the blessings that we read about here do not come without a price, and that's a test, a trial and a tribulation. God has always tested his people. He has always tested his leaders. He's always put trials and difficulties upon them to see which way they're going to go. He tried and tested Abraham on a lot of things. And they put one final test on him. I want you to take your son up. I want you to slice his throat and sacrifice him. Don't let anybody tell you that didn't happen. And when Abraham showed his willingness, and Isaac showed his willingness to have his throat cut, God said, now I know. I know for sure, Abraham, that I can promise you that your seed will become as the sands of the beach, that your seed will be as the stars in the heavens. You have that character. You have passed the tests. And he chose to work through Isaac because Isaac passed the test too. And he tested Jacob. And he tested Joseph. He's tested everybody. And he will do it again. So don't expect that everything is going to go swimmingly and wonderfully, because it may not for a while. But those who endure and are strong and put God first, and no matter what our enemies might do, we trust God, then we'll be included. And it could be that we could even be the one that is used to have the others to come to. Now, I would prefer that. But failing that, I would like to at least be one of those that's able to come to where he does choose. We cannot assume anything. We cannot assume that God will use us instead of somebody else. To assume is to be careless. To assume is to take our ease. Break it down. Assume. You've heard it. I don't want to have an ass made of you and me. Above a year shall you be troubled, you careless women. Now he does say the careless women are the ones that are going to be troubled. The one he chooses, he might protect more and they might have less trouble. In that case, I'd rather be that one, wouldn't you? I'd rather be the apple in God's eye than the spittle in his mouth that he doesn't like the taste of. little acid reflux and is what he did to the church. Tasted awful. You and I coming out his mouth tasted awful. Let's not be discouraged by that. Let's pick ourselves up and fix our taste so that we become tasteful and a delight to God. We're not going to change anything and become delightful to him unless we simply admit and face the problems, are we? Let's go on. Verse 11. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Tremble! Now we're going to read, if we ever get to Hosea today, on down a little bit about people who tremble. 
when they hear the Word of God. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Be troubled. Don't be happy with the way things have been. Be troubled. Well, there's some a lot bigger issues here to be troubled about than whether we got flowers up here or wearing bow ties or long ties. We get off on those issues and, oh, come on, there's, there's, there's bigger things to talk about, brethren. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you, make you bare, and gird sackcloth on your loins. The garments we have been wearing in Worldwide were not holy, righteous, white linen garments. God says, strip off what you were doing. Clean up. Put on different clothes. Sackcloth. That's mourning. They wore sackcloth and ashes when bad things were there. This is not a time to be happy with ourselves. The very fact that the church is going through what it's going through indicates that we need to be stripped bare and put on sackcloth and repent and then put on clean clothing. Clean clothing means righteousness. We have not been to the level of righteousness God wanted. As Paul said, be careful, be very careful. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth on your loins. They shall lament for the breasts, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Yeah, everybody wants everything to go just fine and be good and happy, happy, joy, joy. But that's not what it's about right now. God is going to make the cut pretty quick. I wanted to be a little more inspiring, let's say, this feast. And I had a series that I was working on that I planned that I thought could be that way. But God doesn't seem to be able to let me get out of this book, Hosea. Maybe it's just me lagging behind, I don't know. But we're about to plunge into terrible times on this earth. And God is pondering our hearts today and determining if we're going to be protected and brought out of that and be part of those that he will qualify to keep or build a temple and to be a witness against the world. These are serious times we're in. So maybe we won't talk much about the millennium in this feast. Time is quickly running away for that to happen. But if we can get ourselves in the right direction, on the right path, and making some changes instead of just hearing and going and murmuring about what was said, then maybe God will see our hearts are positive, they're headed in the right direction, and we're not going to be negative anymore. We're going to try to do the best we can what needs to be done. Now, if you're walking by sight... What you can see 
That is not righteousness. Understand that? Faith is walking where you cannot see you're putting your feet. That is a very difficult walk. Ever try to get somewhere on a moonless night? I've nearly walked into the windmill trying to go home over here. I had a belief that the house was over there, and I had an inclination the windmill was probably still there. But I couldn't quite see where I was going. Faith requires us to go somewhere we cannot see the answers in. If you're walking by sight, that is not what God is looking for. If you only do that which you can see, where is the honor, where is the righteousness in that? God required Abraham to seek a city he could not see, did not know where was for sure. He says, go, find it. Well, I don't know where to go. Go, find it. Didn't give him directions. Didn't make it an easy path for him. He was looking for Jerusalem, as I said yesterday. Now that Jerusalem over there is Sodom and Egypt today. I'm looking for something more righteous. I'm looking for something more godly. And I have an inclination from everything I've seen and read and heard in both the Bible and in the petroglyphs and in history, the very possibly Satan deceived on that like he's deceived on everything else. And that there may be an answer different than what we have assumed. Now, I don't expect you to totally embrace that until you examine the information. Only a fool answers before he hears the matter. There are some people who hear about this and say, Oh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Satan has to be in that. That's straight from the devil. Haven't even heard it. Heard of it. Haven't examined it. That's from the devil. How can you make a judgment like that when you haven't even examined the evidence? You're making an assumption. Now, some who examine the evidence more closely may come up with a different view. And I don't have all the answers yet, and I'm not 100% positive that that's the case yet. But I've seen enough evidence that I'm going to find out. And I'm going to walk and look for that city. And if it's there, I will have done the right thing. If it's not there, then I still haven't done anything wrong. I've only searched it out, sought it, and found out one way or the other whether it's true or not. Now, if I see signs in the Bible pointing that this is the promised land and that we are living in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he said he would give it to Israel, then there are some indications and clues in the Bible that I'd better find out what's the truth of the matter. What is the truth of the matter? 
And I'm being very careless and at ease and stupid if I don't try to find out what the real answer is. Now, most people dismiss God's Word. Most people dismiss God. Most people dismiss the Old Testament. And most religions even dismiss most of the New Testament. That's careless. That's crazy. When God says, live by every word of God, you can't pick and choose. So if you start reading scriptures that indicate, hey, there might be something there, it might be something godly, then I think you are bound by your pledge and vow at baptism to check out and find out what God's word is talking about. And sometimes you have to walk in the dark to find out. You have to say, if God put that in there, there must be a reason for it. I better go find out what the reason is. It's easy to blow it off. Oh, that couldn't mean that. Well, then what does it mean? Do we have the faith and the trust in his word that we want to go find out? Do we have any spiritual curiosity at all? Or will we just dismiss it with a flick of the hand? Ah, it couldn't be. How could all these archaeologists be wrong? They're not all wrong. They're just mostly wrong. They can't find the sites mentioned in Joshua. No trace of them. The place that that Jerusalem sits doesn't fit the description of the Bible at all. Never have been seas around it. There's a lot that doesn't fit. You just assume that the Protestant archaeologists and the Greek archaeologists and the Roman archaeologists have all the answers. You assume that Satan hasn't deceived the world on... A lot of things. But he has. He's deceived the whole world. And boy, has he deceived them on religion. I think we'd all agree on that, wouldn't we? Well, you can't separate history and archaeology from religion. If the Bible is true, then it has to fit what's actually there. And the things the Bible says are there are not actually there in the Middle East. People who haven't even studied it just assume that that is correct. They've not made the comparisons. They've not checked it out. They just assume unconverted archaeologists know what they're talking about. And even some of those archaeologists have written articles saying that what they are finding does not match the Bible. And you know what they're doing? They're not throwing out their theory about the Middle East. They're throwing out the Bible. They see the dichotomy. That's a six-bit word. What does that mean? They see the difference. They know it doesn't all fit. They can't find the things they're looking for over there. Why? 
They've been doing it for decades and spending millions and billions of dollars to find the things over there that this book talks about, and they still can't find them. They admit themselves in articles that they have not found anything that indicates Israel was there before 1200 B.C. Nothing. That's from their mouths. But someone who will blow off this idea have not even read their words. Or they have read just select things. But they have not studied the issue and they have not done their homework. What we are not up on, we are down on. That's a good quote from someone who's done an awful lot of study of these matters. Anything you have not studied and are ignorant about, you will immediately put down because it isn't what you think in your little pea brain. Now don't get offended because I said you had a pea brain. It's so easy to offend people. Who does he think he is calling me a pea brain? Well, God says all the nations are less than a drop in the bucket. That's a lot smaller than pea size. Thou worm, Jacob. I don't think our brains are quite as big as we thought they were. We're not near as smart as we think we are. But I do not feel that I can assume, brethren. I have to find out. I already know from my own experience and from my own study that this area is very important to God. And I believe Zion is here and it's the original Zion. And some people have come to the feast here and accepted that. But then you take it one notch further and say, well, Zion and Jerusalem must be pretty close together somewhere. He didn't have Zion here and Jerusalem there. It's got to be one way or the other. If Zion's here, Jerusalem has to be here. If Zion's over there, then Jerusalem has to be over there. Now, I live here, and I prefer this place than I do to, to that place. Been there, done that, didn't like it at all. I wanted to get out of there just as fast as I could. Drive my little rented car back to Tel Aviv and grab a plane out of there. Nasty, dirty, filthy place. Not righteous at all. So, emotionally, I'd rather this be it. And then I wouldn't have to get up and move again. Tired of moving, too. Next time I move, I hope I'm running. I'm not having to take all my stuff. But when an issue is raised, it has to be proved. One way or the other. The issue of Passover came up, whether we were doing it right. Ah, it has to be right. The way we did it worldwide, couldn't be wrong. I could have taken that approach and we'd still be doing it the way we used to do it. Could have been one or two or three people that have probably left, said, well, you won't accept new truth, so I'm out of here.
Once the question came up, I had to get the book out, and I had to go through every last scripture that even hinted about it. Because it is here a little and there a little. And find out everything God said about the subject that I could possibly find in the Bible. So that I could make a knowledgeable decision. Based on the whole Bible, not one or two verses. Some people have turned the new understanding of Passover down because of one or two verses in Leviticus 23 that don't match the whole direction of the Bible. Now, I did not consider it fair to you to immediately accept something because somebody pointed out one verse to me in Exodus 12. It wouldn't have been fair. I had to look at the whole matter, and I poured over these scriptures for days and weeks. And even after the decision was made, I went back for weeks and weeks after re-examining it to be sure See, this was a big change. It affects one of the major holy days of God and what Christ did and everything about it. I couldn't be careless or at ease about that. I spent a lot of time and hours going over and back over. Read the same scripture 15, 20 times to be sure I was getting the sense of it because I wanted the decision to be right. And I didn't dare assume one direction or the other. What is God's whole mind on this subject? Now, can we be any less diligent when another question comes up that actually pretty much fits in with some understanding that we already have and just say, oh, that couldn't be? Or maybe you don't like that we're spending a lot of time finding this out. But this is a very important understanding. It can affect where the place of safety is. It can affect where Christ is coming back to this earth. It can affect where we're going to be in the meantime. It can affect whether we have to move overseas. It can affect whether we are in the right place doing the thing God wants done or not, or whether the Jews building that temple over there is sufficient. It could have an effect on whether the very elect are deceived or not. A very direct effect. And whether they're in the right place to do God's work. I, personally, want to know absolutely for sure which Jerusalem is correct. Or even if there is one here. I need to know, not guess. Not assume. One way or the other. So I have to take what I read in God's Word and walk in faith to go find out and work at it. Now this is an important issue. And God says when we try to find the truth about a matter, we need to search as if we were looking for silver and gold. You know what silver and gold miners go through? Excuse me. They go through water that would freeze your behind off up in the Klondike. 
we have expressions about cold as somebody well diggers body parts. Gold miners' body parts get just as cold. They go through danger. A lot of those went up to Alaska in that gold rush. Died of cold, died of starvation, died of indigestion, eating poisoned, not poisoned, but tainted, spoiled meat. A lot of them killed each other. Somebody that's really intent on finding gold is willing to sacrifice comfort, wealth, health, life to find it. And God said that's the way we ought to seek his truth. I need to know where Jerusalem is, if it's here or not. I am bound by God's word to search it out. Now, you may not agree. You may think it's stupid. That's up to you. But, if there are those who are seeking and looking and don't want to be careless and think that it's worth checking out, don't you dare disturb or destroy the feeble faith that they are putting forth to try to find out the true answer. Don't you dare. God will take you and put a millstone on you and throw you into the sea and you will die, glove, glove. That's how serious it is. Maybe this has taken a long time for you, but it's been short for me. Be careful, don't offend the little one. Who's the little one? I don't know. But if you take upon yourself to influence, to teach, to make your views known, rest assured that God will judge you much more sternly than in someone who does not take it upon themselves to influence the minds of others. You are opening yourself for a greater condemnation. So let us be careful. Let us be warned. Let us actually maybe make some changes. Brethren, I don't want to repeat, and I don't want you to repeat, the same mistake that Israel made. They murmured and murmured and murmured not knowing what in the world they were talking about, not seeing God. We read it there in Hosea yesterday. He was trying to draw them with bands of love into a promised land. He was trying to bless them. And they didn't even know he was there. Now, is he in what we're doing right now? I don't know whether you can answer that one way or the other yet. For sure. But should we give it a chance? Should we find out? Should we examine? Is it fair to ourselves not to? <coughs> it's easier to pass it off. It's easier to disagree. 
murmuring and griping and saying that can't be, just rolls off our tongue. That is so easy to do. It's really hard to control it. Let's give it a chance. Is that fair? Let's examine all the information. This is a much bigger issue than tithes or flowers. Much bigger issue. Where is Jerusalem? That could be a very important and big question. And once the question is raised and some evidence is produced that indicate that it could be, we are bound to find out for sure. Examine it all. You blow it off, you could be a careless woman at ease. Now he says, strip yourself bare. Mourn for what we have been. And do something different. Now, we better find out what something different is and not repeat the same mistakes that we made in worldwide and not repeat the same mistakes our forebears repeated in the wilderness. <coughs> Why will you die? Excuse me. Why will you die, O Israel? Why did they die? They refused to, God, to see God in a place where God was. That's why they died in the desert. God was there, brethren. He truly was there in that desert. And they murmured and complained to Moses that God brought us out in this wilderness to kill us. No, he did not. He took them out there to save them. I believe God brought us out here to save us, not kill us. And I see God's hand in it. If you don't, then give it a chance and wait and see if his hand is in it. Had those Israelites not seen God in it and thought it was just Moses and kept their big fat mouths shut and followed they would have found out in short order whether it was right or not. It's not that far to walk if you walk in a straight line. But if you wander about for 40 years, any hike can be a long one. You got lost over there, Paul. If you walked in a straight line, you'd have been out of there pretty quick. You wandered around. Just like I'd have done if I'd have been lost out there. We're in a wilderness spiritually today. If they had not murmured and complained, they would have gone straight to Jerusalem, to the land of Canaan, and possessed the land. But just because they couldn't see God in it and murmured and complained, God caused every last man, woman, and child of them, not child, their children went into the promised land, but they died. God didn't write that story in there 
for the Jews. He wrote that story in there for you and me. Don't we believe that? Don't we have Passover every year and we, we re-examine that story and say that's for the church? Don't we see it in the New Testament where it says the fast and Pentecost? And don't we keep those? Did he write it back there just for those Jews? No, he wrote it for you and me. He wrote it for the church today. And Esther and all those books in the Bible were written for today. Did not Timothy Paul, Paul write to Timothy that all Scripture, all Scripture was written for instruction in righteousness, for doctrine? What were the other two? They don't come to mind. And the only Scripture Paul had at that time was the Old Testament. And he said, Esther was written to instruct the New Testament church in holiness and righteousness and doctrine. Now you either believe the Apostle Paul and what he wrote to Timothy and what God put in the Scriptures, or you might as well throw the book away. The Protestants do away with the Old Testament except for Psalms and Proverbs because it's inspiring. Now, are you going to throw away the book of Esther because you say, well, it was just for the Jews? Come on, people, wake up! All Scripture, including Esther, Psalms, Proverbs, and every book in the Old Testament that Paul was referring to, and he was referring to the Old Testament alone, and said it's all profitable. But I'll have people stand up and say, well, that was just for the Jews. They don't understand God's Word. They don't understand God. Don't listen to that. Do you believe in God's Word? Do you? If you believe in this Word, do not... Listen to people who tell you that part of it isn't God. Part of it was just must have been included by some somebody somewhere. It isn't me you reject. It's God's word. Well, that's just Daryl's opinion. No, it's not. I didn't write the book of Esther and I didn't put it in your Bible. Most of you had your Bible before you ever met me. I didn't sneak in your house and put a book of Esther or Psalms or any other book in your Bible. It's God's Word. It was written for the New Testament church, or the Apostle Paul doesn't have a clue what he was talking about. He was an apostle appointed of God and went into the desert and listened to Christ himself for three and a half years. And he knew what he was talking about. What part of the Bible are you going to throw away? Because you don't want to do it. So you won't examine the whole Bible on a subject. You'll pick out a scripture you like that seems to fit the way you want to think, and you'll leave the rest out. That's blasphemy. 